0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, are going to be having a chat about Jan Zizka, a bloke who, in the fullness of time, has become a czech national hero because of his leadership because of his military brilliance his genius that he showed off during the hussite wars all the way back in the uh, in the 15th century zizka was one of the military leaders for the hussites for the taborites uh, a sect of the hussites that fought against crusading catholic forces that were attempting to stamp out the the hussite movement which was essentially a, uh, a pre-Reformation Protestant uh, Protestant religious movement, and Jan Zizka was not only a, a gifted strategist and a brilliant tactician; he was also a very innovative and resourceful military campaigner who very enthusiastically put to use the latest in military technology, in addition to some very basic and rudimentary tools that he and his troops had had access to. For the most part, Zizka led untrained peasants without any military experience and he combined the use of pistols and rifles and cannons with the use of simple farm tools in order to fight the elite forces the elite military of places like the kingdom of hungary the holy roman empire as he defended bohemia and the hussites from this crusade so much to talk about with jishka because he is one of these blokes who was so ready for the future. And he was rewarded for his enthusiasm for the next era of, of military technology, of human history, really, as he was never defeated on the battlefield. He won every single battle that he fought. And on top of this, for half of his military career, he only had one eye. And for the other half, he had zero. This bloke won battles while completely Blind, an incredible figure, so much to talk about with his history. So let's get to it. Let's have a chat about Jan Žiška and his role in the early stages of the Hussite War. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to, well, roughly speaking, 1360. Don't know for sure. That's the best we can do around that year. Jan Žiška was born in the village of Troknov, which uh, back then was part of the Kingdom of Bohemia, which back then was part of the Holy Roman Empire. Today, Troknov is in the Czech Republic. Um... Broadly speaking, Bohemia was the precursor state to uh, the modern Czech Republic and Slovakia. Anyway, Žižka, born as a member of the minor landed gentry. So while he's not a peasant, he still isn't very high on the feudal social ladder. His family isn't all that wealthy. Uh, And as a result of his family's general historical obscurity, I mean, he wasn't born to one of the great medieval ruling houses or anything like that. We actually don't know anything really about his family. We know essentially nothing. We don't know anything about his mum, his dad. We know that he had a brother named Yaroslav and a sister named Aneshka, but that is about it. Oh, we do know one more thing. Uh, The Zhizhka family had a crayfish on its coat of arms, which is a very weird thing to have. I would pick, I guess, a cool animal instead of a crustacean, I'd pick like, I don't know an owl or something sick, but you know not a crayfish. but uh, it's, it, I mean it's their coat of arms, whatever it's their choice. You anyway, know we don't know we don't know much about his uh, his early life at all. Um, the point at which we can reliably start to talk about him in his is in his late teens, when he was involved in some minor legal matters over land and money and boring stuff like that. Um so he might he might have at a relatively young age, he might have been in charge of his family's small holdings. Uh, but again, just a guess. It's all based off of a handful of surviving documents from around 1380 or so. It's not actually until the year 1419 when Žižka is you know, approaching or in his 60s that we can actually start to say with any accuracy what he got up to. Uh, there's a lot of guesswork, a lot of conjecture over the years before that. Uh, as early as 1406, he does crop up in documents accused of being a bandit and an outlaw, uh, although there aren't too many details to be found on that. He might have lost his lands or had them confiscated and it might have turned in, turned to a life of crime as a result, maybe robbing people on the road as a leader of a band of highwaymen, or he may have just been labelled a bandit by a feudal liege that didn't like him very much. That's also a possibility. Uh, it does look like at some point he worked as a mercenary uh, and, and may have even attached himself to the royal court of uh, King Wenceslas IV. This is the same Wenceslas from episode 25 the defenestrations of prague get across it um we're going to talk about him uh in in and, and the defenestrations in just a little bit uh um but he may have he may have attached himself to the court of 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 this one not this isn't and as i mentioned in episode 25 king wenceslas the fourth not good king wenceslas of the song in fact quite bad king wenceslas this king was pretty use useless king wenceslas i think if there'd been a song about this bloke but uh, the best evidence we have for his work as a mercenary is his probable participation in the 1410 battle of Grunwald fighting for Poland and Lithuania against the te- uh, against the Teutonic Order and this was one of the largest battles in the entirety of medieval european history it effectively ended the teutonic order and Žižka may very well have been there fighting for pay but look the long and the, the long and the short of it is this we actually don't know for certain what this bloke got up to for not even the first half of his life the basically the first two thirds of it um, especially as as once he the, the other problem when we 're talking about this guy 's history is once he rose to a position of you know being a national hero, people just started making stuff stuff up about him, so myths and legends and all these other things they start to crop up and can can sometimes be hard to separate from the truth. Uh, for instance, in later years, people claimed that Zhishka fought in the Battle of Agincourt, which we talked only we talked about only last week, episode two hundred twenty three. Hundred years old, we'll get across it, uh, which he almost certainly did not. But uh, these are some of the stories and, and myths and legends that have emerged about this bloke, particularly as he as he rose to to historical fame. But. I can say with some confidence that he definitely worked as a mercenary or maybe was a bandit uh, before rising to historical prominence. And in all honesty, it could be both, given that we don't have a clear picture of, you know, the first 40 years of his life. So we will skip forward here. We'll skip forward to the year 1420, when Žižka really began to make his mark and emerged as a hero to the Czech people as he took up the fight against the Catholics. By 1420... Uh, Whatever he'd been getting up to over the last few decades, it has cost him one of his eyes. I did mention that he'd lost uh, the use of one of his eyes and this had happened at some point before our our story really begins here. Uh, And as a result, most depictions of of Zhishka show him with at least an eye patch. Um, But he had also in this time learned a thing or two about how to fight. And at this point, he's fallen in with the Hussites. I mentioned the Hussites. This was a movement that was essentially a precursor to the Protestant Reformation. A preacher named Jan Hus began to speak out against the Catholic Church, ultimately was condemned as a heretic to burn at the stake for it. But before this, amassed quite a following. And even after the martyrdom of Hus, they continued his work and uh, and campaigned for reform within the church. And in 1419, on the 30th of July, a Hussite priest whose name was Jan Jalevsky marched through Prague at the head of a long line of Hussites protesting the imprisonment of some Hussite prisoners. And maybe this sounds familiar to you, and if it does, there's a very good reason for that. You've already heard all about what Jalevsky got up to in episode 25, the defenestration of Prague, get across it. Some people say that Žižka was there to witness it himself, but again, this is probably a fabrication. It's very unlikely. But the reason that I talk about the defenestration of Prague, the first defenestration of Prague, there were others. You can go and listen to them. Um, uh, One of the reasons I bring up this one is that this was one of the key events that sparked the Hussite wars. And after leading this protest through Prague, Zhelevsky and his mates, they chucked some politicians out of a window, killed them, which in turn, legend tells, tells us, killed Wenceslas IV, as he had a heart attack apparently when he heard the news. That it probably isn't true. Uh, but the rest of it is, chucking people out a window, plus Wenceslas's death, which was unrelated or not, whatever. This was more or less the beginning of the Hussite Wars. But where's Zhishka if he's not helping chuck people out a window? Well, he was in Plzen, right? He was in a different part of, uh, of Bohemia with a radical faction of the Hussites known as the Taborites. Now, here's something you should know about the Hussites, and this is something that's going to be a bit bit more important later on in the episodes. Now, they didn't really get on all that well with Catholics. That's not going to surprise you. I mean, they're about to fight a war with the Catholics. They didn't get on with them that well. But they also really didn't get on that well with each other. Hussites were just as likely to disagree with each other as they were with the Catholics that they were fighting. And the Taborites, for instance, which were quite a radical faction of the Hussites, they wanted a complete and total separation from the Catholic Church, while the Utrequists, uh, another flavour of Hussite, uh, they were more moderate, they were more conciliatory. Nevertheless, the Catholics, they're not having any of it. Pope Martin IV launched a crusade against against them, and King Sigismund, who was Wenceslas' successor, He jumped at the chance to get stuck into some fighting and the Hussites prepared for war. Now, Zizhka at this time, he was made into one of the commanders of the nascent Hussite forces, and it wasn't long before he saw battle. On the 25th of March, 1420, Zizhka was leading a small group of around 400 Hussites, not even soldiers, these people, just normal men and women across the plains near the village of Sudomir, when they encountered a much larger group of Sigismund's crusaders. Around 5,000 of them, in fact. 5,000 Catholic crusaders, 700 of them heavily armoured knights, and they were ready to crack some Hussite skulls, let me tell you. And it was up to Zizka to come up with a plan here against these overwhelming odds to try to save these people he was leading. And this is where we're going to start to talk about Zizka's military brilliance and his adoption of tactics and technology that was well ahead of its time. He ordered all the wagons that his troops were traveling, I say troops, all the people, they were just peasants, just commoners, right? Uh, All the people that were traveling with him, he orders the wagons to be drawn up together like a wall in a thick and marshy and swampy area And then he loaded the wagons full of arquebusiers, right, proto-riflemen, essentially, using primitive gunpowder weapons, and ordered them to fire on the approaching crusaders using the wagons as cover. And this position and these tactics actually saw Žižka and his Hussites, if you'll believe it, win the day, despite both being overwhelmingly outnumbered and... The fact that most of the people fighting for Zhishka had absolutely no military training or experience. As the heavily armoured crusaders approached the makeshift fortification that Zhishka had pulled together with these wagons in the middle of a swamp, they had to dismount. They had to make their way across the mire on foot in heavy armour. And of course, they were lumbering, they were slow, and they were easy pickings for the arquebusiers in in the wagons who shot them one by one as they dragged themselves towards the wagons. And those that did make it to the wagons, they were exhausted after lumbering through the mud and so were beaten to death by these peasants and their flails. They didn't have swords or anything like that. There were no fancy weapons of war in the hands of these commoners. They had farm tools, tools used to thresh grain. And this battle demonstrates how an age of warfare was coming to an end gunpowder weaponry was steadily obsoleting the heavy armour of traditional medieval troops. And look, to hear more about that, episode 115, the history of gunpowder, get across it. But here, the Hussites, while they took heavy casualties themselves at the Battle of Sudamer, it was nothing compared to the Crusader losses. Thousands and thousands of Sigismund's men died in the mud to a hail of gunfire, and the battle ended when night fell and a fog obscured the battlefield which Zishka then cleverly used to screen a full withdrawal along with the Hussites that had survived. And I think it's fair to say he won this battle. Certainly the casualties that Sigismund had uh, had suffered far outstripped Zhishka's losses, and his masterful use of terrain and makeshift fortifications won him what was ultimately an incredibly improbable victory, and it set him on his road to greatness. Flushed with the success at Sudomer, Žižka was, as I say, made one of the commanders of the Hussite forces, and he was instrumental in the organization and the and the management of this rudimentary Hussite military. Many of those that were coming to fight for the Hussites, they were just peasants. They were farmers and blacksmiths, commoners of all kinds. They weren't military people. But this didn't bother Žižka at all, because after all he reasoned, these people, they're all skilled with flails and axes and hammers and picks and whatever else. And all of these tools can be very effective when used as weapons. On the 12th of June later that year in 1420, Žižka once again led a Hussite defence against an overwhelmingly large crusader force, this time defending the city of Prague in the Battle of Vitkov Hill. Once again, he made excellent use of gunpowder weapons being fired from fixed positions, and also made excellent use of terrain, forcing the crusading knights to fight uphill, again under a hail of bullets. If the Crusaders made it up the hill, they then had to contend with these peasants, armed as they were with various farm implements, while also being shot at, while also being exhausted after trudging uphill in full armour. But this time, rather than sneak away at night, Zhishka led the Hussites to a stunning victory after weakening the Crusading forces with their this uphill battle. A Hussite relief force swept in from the rear, forced the Crusaders over the other side of the hill, which was essentially a cliff, it was that steep, and as the Crusaders routed and fled, many ended up in the river as they tried to get away, where once again their heavy armour weighed them down and drowned them. So with the Crusading army broken, Sigismund withdrew them completely from Prague, pulled out his army altogether, and Žižka had won the day once again with the masterful use of terrain and modern weaponry. Well, I say modern weaponry, a combination of modern weaponry and just about the most rudimentary weapons you can find. But this was what Zhishka was all about. Innovation. The early adoption of military technology that would go on to change the way that humans waged war against each other. And Zhishka followed up his victory at, uh, at Vitkov Hill with another victory at the Battle of Isharad, which drove the Crusaders out of Bohemia altogether and handed de facto control of the kingdom to the victorious Hussites. And the next year, in 1421, the Hussites performed a provisional government and they sought out a new king for their realm, one who would be sympathetic to their cause, all made possible by Zhishka and his triumphs. More than anything else, the Battle of Visharad was won with Hussite artillery, which blew the Crusader cavalry to bits and enabled a devastating counterattack from Zhizhka's troops. Thanks to his enthusiastic adoption and use of this modern military technology, Zhizhka was able to pull off victories that just a few decades previous, without access to gunpowder weapons, would have been completely unthinkable. And so it's here that I want to talk about Zhizhka's most famous legacy. We've talked about his adoption of new military technology, putting gunpowder weapons to great effect, but it's not just the weapons he used; it's how he used them, the way in which he fought these battles that was so absolutely groundbreaking. Thinking back to his victory at Sudomir, using wagons as mobile cover for arquebusiers, Zhizhka began to develop what has become known to history as the wagon fort. At Sudomir, necessity had been the mother of invention, and Zhizhka had come up with a quick but brilliant plan to defend the people that he was with from the attacking crusaders. But it had been so effective that Zizhka thought to himself, there's something here. I know it. I know there's something. He spent time developing this idea fully. And in many of the battles we're going to talk about, Zizhka deployed his wagon forts with great success, and they proved to be incredibly effective. Here's how Zizhka put them to work. He would take regular wagons, just the normal wagons used by farmers to transport crops and stuff like that. He would fortify them, add thick wooden planks or even metal plates to them. And then the reinforced walls of the wagons would have small slits cut in them for for the people inside to shoot through. Each wagon would have around 20 people assigned to it. Around half of these people would have ranged weapons, some with guns, some with crossbows. And then the other half was uh, was made up of infantry, plus the drivers of the wagons themselves. And in this way, Zhishka developed what you might call an early form of tank warfare, a powerful mobile unit with a dedicated crew, although these wagon forts were best put to use defensively rather than offensively. Before a battle, the wagons would be drawn up and chained together in a square, and the wagons' crews would take up position inside the wagons, ready to fire on the enemy as they approached. And inside this square, a reserve of infantry and cavalry would wait, ready to engage in close quarters should the need arise. And, perhaps most importantly of all, in the gaps between the wagons, Zizka would place pieces of gunpowder artillery, cannons effectively, although the Czechs called them something different. The Czechs called them hufniches, right? Which is where we get the word howitzer today. Uh, interestingly, the origin of the word pistol is also probably Czech, as uh, small handheld firearms were put to, to great use by Zizka and his Hussites. Hasa- uh, they called them pistala. Um, and this was the first time that they rose to prominence in, in Europe. And the Czech term, it, it does seem to have stuck in, in English as well. Anyway, these, these Hufnichs, they were mounted on small carts, they were ena- which enabled them to be moved about pretty quickly. Shishka uh, was amongst the first to do this, by the way, the, amongst the first person to have medium-sized mobile artillery units set up like this. And once the wagon fort was set up, bristling with crossbows and pistols and rifles and artillery, all securely defended by the thick walls of the wagons, Zhishka would attempt to coax his enemy into an attack on this unassuming square of, you know, farm wagons, essentially. I mean, just think about what that meant. Traditionally, in a pitched battle, both sides would line up and charge at the other and fight it out that way. But here, however, Zhishka had set up what was effectively a makeshift fortress and challenged the enemy to bring the fight to them on the defender's terms. And defending these wagon forts was a very simple thing to do for a couple of different reasons. I mean, principally, look, just imagine it from the enemy's perspective here. You're a heavily armoured knight. On a horse, you are the final word in medieval military might. You rock up at this battlefield and you see peasants sitting inside some farm wagons. So you think easy peasy, charge over these wagons at top speed on the horse, put all the peasants inside of the fire and the sword. And then I'm going to be home in time for dinner. No worries at all. But then as you charge, you're charging into a hail of bullets and crossbow bolts into the deafening boom of artillery firing at you. Your horse is shot out from under you. You're next as you attempt to drag yourself across the terrain to towards this, this now seemingly impregnable fortress loaded as it was with ranged weapons. One person with a crossbow or a gun was no match for a mounted knight. They had a slow rate of fire. If you missed your first shot, you were dead because the, the, the knight would run you down and kill you on the spot. But a bunch of them, all defended by the walls of a wagon, they could pick knights off very easily as they charged. Because usually, usually as, I, as I sort of mentioned before and kind of sadly, uh, the people shooting at these knights would aim at their horses rather than at the rider. If, they, if you were to, to disable the horse, the rider would come off, and even if he doesn't get injured after coming off the horse, it's a lot easier to shoot him now as he's not on horseback. But if the enemy didn't charge, the wagon fort was also effective against that. If they held back, the Hufniches would fire round after round at them at a long range, pummeling them and forcing them to make a decision are you going to attack or are you going to withdraw? And even if the attackers managed a successful charge, even if the crossbowmen and the gunmen didn't get them all as they approached, the wagon fort was still filled with infantry and cavalry, fresh and ready to fight hand to hand. The Hufniches were also very effective at close range. This, the artillery bombardment wasn't just for long range. They could blast people to bits at close range with these cannons. And as the enemy troops bore down on the wagon fort, the Huvnitches would be turned against them and they would get a taste of of close-range artillery fire. And then, if it all went well for the people defending the wagon fort, which broadly speaking under Zhishka it very much did, the enemy would break and flee and they would run away at top speed from the fort, which is when all the cavalry would emerge from within the square that had been protected by the fort and chase them down and kill them as they routed. And this was Zhishka's approach to warfare, and it was extremely effective. As I mentioned, he never lost a single battle throughout his entire career. So let's talk about some of these battles that emerged as the conflict between the Hussites and and the Catholic Crusaders led by Sigismund continued to rage on. Zizhka became a more and more formidable threat to the Crusaders as uh, as time went on. They underestimated him. And look, perhaps understandably, uh, to, uh, to begin with, he was just seen as being in charge of little more than a peasant rabble without military training. But with his war wagons and with peasants taking up their tools as weapons as they were inspired by Zizhka, the Crusaders made a very foolish error in underestimating the Hussites. And what's Even more remarkable about the victories that we're going to talk about here is that Zhishka had, by this stage, lost his other eye. While besieging a town in mid 1421, Zhishka was blinded in his one remaining eye, but even this couldn't stop him. He still managed to lead his troops to victory after victory while completely blind, which goes to show just how sharp his military mind was, that he didn't need to see the battlefield in front of him in order to bring about victory. And over the next few years, Zizka threw everything he had at the Crusaders and he did very bloody well in doing so. He had adopted much more modern forms of warfare than his opponents. Um, and, you know, this sort of ties in with what we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes. We're talking about how the times, they were a-changing at the uh, at this point in history, in the 15th century. The tried and true tactics of medieval warfare are finally facing obsolution. And, and Jan Zizka, was one of the people who sped on this obsolescence by adopting the latest military technology and hardware, undermining the supremacy of things like the heavily armoured knight, such as during the Battle of, uh, of Kutnahora in late 1421 when the Hussites met crusaders from Hungary and the Holy Roman Empire on the battlefield. And initially, Žižka's uh, wagon-fort tactics held the crusaders at bay. Countless knights met their end at the wrong end of a Hussite gun or cannon. And the Crusader dead were piling up in their thousands. But even so, the battle didn't look like it was going to go all that well for the Hussites. Because, as ever, Zizhka and his forces were so overwhelmingly outnumbered that the Crusaders were actually able eventually to encircle Zizhka's wagons altogether. And Zizhka realised that continued encirclement would result in complete and utter defeat, just through the sheer weight of numbers that the Crusaders had. So he showed his resourcefulness and adaptability by coming up with a new plan on the fly. He quickly reorganized all the wagons from their square into a line instead, and he ordered them to charge at a point in the Crusaders' lines. And as they did, the gunners and the bowmen inside the wagons fired mercilessly at the Crusaders and punched a hole in their line, which the Hussites then all raced through and escaped. And this was, according to some historians, the first ever mobile artillery maneuver in history. And while it wasn't a traditional victory in the sense that the Crusaders weren't routed or driven off, they had suffered monumental losses as they fruitlessly attempted to attack the wagons under a hail of gunfire. And their maneuvers in attempting to encircle the the Hussites and and bring about a, a victory that way was not quick enough and not executed successfully, Zizka was able to break through the lines and after having inflicted massive losses on the crusading forces, escape freely. And what was worse for the crusaders, they had nothing to show for these losses. The Hussites had escaped with minimal losses of their own, not to mention how embarrassing it was for the elite fighting forces of the Holy Roman Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary to be beaten by a blind bandit and his peasant rabble. And this battle... Proved the efficacy of Zhishka's tactics, and he ran this approach back more than a few times in the battles that would come. You know, tempt the enemy into an attack on the wagons, pick off their forces with guns and crossbows and artillery, and then charge the lines and break away. Essentially, Zhishka was bringing a gun to a sword fight, and the results backed him up. He was fighting these battles on a different level to his opponents. Early into the next year, following up from this victory, uh, in 1422, Žižka fought and won the Battle of Niboviti and then the Battle of Deutschbrod as well against the Crusaders, with the war wagons once again being crucial to victory, particularly, particularly at Deutschbrod. Um, they were, as I sort of said before, they're more or less tanks, and even armoured knights were were no match for them. Uh, at the Battle of uh, Niboviti, Sigismund himself came perilously close to being captured, or, although Žižka Uh, Zizhka's forces, I should say, were infamous for not taking prisoners. Zizhka himself often ordered them to be merciful and take prisoners and spare those who surrendered, but Zizhka's men were having none of that and and often killed anyone and offered no quarter rather than taking them as prisoner. Unfortunately, however, new problems were emerging for the Hussites, despite their continued victories on the battlefield thanks to Zizhka's brilliance. The more political power the Hussites carved out for themselves, the more divided they became within themselves. Uh, I mentioned before, you know, if there's one thing the Hussites love to do, it was fight Catholics. But if there was another thing they loved to do, it was fight amongst themselves. And various Hussite factions allied through necessity, more or less, in the face of a common foe, they now began to fall apart. Without the threat of immediate destruction hanging over the Hussite movement, previously co-op, cooperative Hussite sects, began to fight amongst themselves over the future and the destiny of Bohemia. And as the crusade against the Hussites dwindled, and as Sigismund suffered defeat after defeat, a new conflict emerged in Bohemia, a civil war between the Hussites. Now, Jishka, as I mentioned, was attached to a faction known as the Taborites, uh, a radical sect of the Hussites. Um, and these were the people that he began to fight for. And at the Battle of Horiche in uh, in 1423, Žižka used his war wagons once again, but this time to defeat the Utrequists, those who believed in conciliation between the Hussites and the Catholics. As usual, he set up his wagon fort on elevated ground, he coaxed his enemies, who were mainly mounted knights, to launch a fruitless uphill battle. Many of them abandoned their horses, continued on foot because of how steep the hill was, and it was a slaughter once again. The Utrequists had been Sufficiently winnowed down by the crossbows and by the gunfire for the cavalry to emerge from within the wagon fort, they swept down the hill, killed those who remained, and it was a complete and total victory for Zishka and his Taborites. And this entrenched the Taborites as one of the more dominant Hussite factions within Bohemia. And this... Plus, the news that the Catholics were preparing to renew their crusade on the Hussites led to the Hussites putting aside their differences once again, accepting the leadership of Žižka and the Taborites and looking to turn their military attention outside of Bohemia to fight the Catholics. Žižka even rode to Hungary in an attempt to take the fight to Sigismund himself directly, although this... It did not go well. I have to say, while he wasn't directly defeated in battle, it became very clear that the Hungarians were a lot stronger with a home ground advantage, and so Zhishka quickly withdrew. And he did so to his credit with very minimal losses, and that's why he's not really credited with having uh, been defeated, as he did kind of pull out before <laughs> before things got too bad. But uh, unfortunately, as he withdrew, he withdrew to a Bohemia that, that was by this stage, you know, crusade or no once again beset by Hussite infighting. And, in, and in, 14, in 1424, civil war erupted once again between the Hussite factions. Žižka marched on Prague to quell the fighting, and this helped to bring about a peace agreement between the conflicting Hussites. And Žižka and was ready to once again take up the fight against the Catholics, with the Hussites having Broke an, an uneasy truce between themselves. Their attention was on fighting the Catholics, the common enemy. Zishka helped to remind all the squabbling Hussite factions who they should really be going after, and he led by example. He prepared his forces to march into Moravia, to the east of Bohemia, and fight Sigismund's supporters there. And so once again, he set off to give the Catholics the business. And look, I, I'm I'm sorry about this. I really am because. What we're coming to now is a very abrupt and also very unsatisfying end to Žižka's story. He never made it to Moravia. Rather than a a glorious end in battle befitting such a gifted and remarkable military leader, rather than falling as he fought or giving his life for for the cause he believed in, Jan Žižka contracted the plague and died on the 11th of October 1424. Sometimes history brings the stories rich with poetic justice or or irony, uh, or it paints a portrait of a character that undertakes a great transformative journey that goes on to alter the course of history. Some stories from history have pacing and development and, and, and endings that outstrip even the best fiction. But other times, history reminds us that Every single one of its characters has been, at the end of the day, a real person who suffered the cold realities of real life. And Zhishka's sudden end as he marched on towards his next campaign, dying suddenly and abruptly, this is a reminder that history is not scripted and it doesn't favour any particular person or cause or idea or movement. History merely is what it is. Zizka had lived a full and rich life, to be sure, and dying in his early sixties. But it wasn't the death that he would have hoped for, or the death that you might have expected for a soldier and a leader of his calibre. And apparently, his die—I mean, I've got to talk about his dying wish. Brace yourself for this, because the surprises haven't stopped yet. His dying wish was apparently to have his skin made into war drums, which is just so gross, but he he requested this specifically so he could continue to lead and inspire his troops after death. And his troops, for what it's worth, were so devastated by the loss of their leader that after his death they called themselves the Orphans from that point onwards, and they continued to fight for the Hussite cause in his memory. But as the war continued, Zhishka's successors attempted to emulate his triumphs on the battlefield with the war wagons, but they weren't successful in doing so. For one, the tactic is now a known quantity and enemies were able to anticipate and counter the wagon forts with tactics of their own as the world quickly moved to a new historical era. But secondly, they lacked Zhishka's genius, his innovation, his ability to lead his troops to victory no matter what was thrown with him much of the time as well, on top of this, remember, doing it without the use of his eyes. The Hussite Wars continued after Žižka's death, the fighting continued until 1434, and it resulted ultimately in the victory of the Utraquists, the moderate faction against which Žižka and his radical Taborites had once fought. So to put it very simply, and this is a huge simplification, Žižka's side lost, essentially, as the moderate Utraquists concluded the war with a series of compromises with the Catholics, which resulted in the banning of radical Hussitism, and also with Sigismund becoming King of Bohemia in practice as well as in name. And even though Zishka fought for the losing side, he nonetheless went down in history as a respected and admired figure amongst both his supporters and his enemies, his ability to adapt and innovate and inspire, his resourceful use of modern military technology, his brilliance with tactics and strategy, like other great generals such as Hannibal and Julius Caesar and Napoleon, episodes 40, 205 and 211, get across him. he is still studied by military minds today. And today, Jan Žiška remains a great national hero to the Czech people. And you can still find a statue of him atop Vitkov Hill, where he defended, all those years ago, the Czech capital of Prague. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Jan Žiška. I do hope you enjoyed it. And uh, as ever, we'll do a a quick close of the show with all the boring housekeeping stuff history.net the website. Uh, if you want to go and subscribe to the show to make sure you get uh, the latest updates for it, uh, Spotify, iTunes can do that. You can also join the Discord. If you go to bit.ly slash join Riley's Discord, scroll down, there is a Half ass uh, History Discord. It's one of the places that you can get updates about new episodes or submit topic suggestions or just have a, a chat about the show with other fans. But if you want to get in touch with me more, me more personally... Um, there 's a contact form on the website which you can use and uh, and I do obviously read every single email that I receive, even if i can 't reply to all of them. I do apologize for that. If you feel like you 'd like to support the show, you certainly can do that with merch or uh, via patreon patreon.com slash half history and it 's there you gain access to all sorts of other bonus stuff behind the scenes things uncut uh, uncut episodes, show notes um, early access to to shows. Uh, uh, patron members at the moment have got uh, early access not only to this episode but the next f- three or four episodes uh, as they've all been put out uh, fairly early a lot earlier than usual uh, so if you if you have had your fill of old episodes you want to get your hands on some new ones ahead of time uh, now's a great time to go over to patreon and uh, and su- and subscribe there uh, but even if you don't thanks so much for listening and thank you to those of you who are out there telling people about the show uh, anyone who's in need of a podcast recommendation it's always great to see uh, on Twitter, or you know, knowing that people are going out and uh, in their day-to-day lives recommending half Our history to people, I do very much appreciate it. So, uh, so thanks very much for that. Uh, but that'll that'll just about do it for this week. As ever, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Hans underscore Useless, who asks, "I've heard about magnetic poles flipping, but what about magnetic checks?"